Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. All right, welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Uh, this is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm joined today by my guest host, co-host, Martha Tartanik. So thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Lauren. It's great to be back. It's great to have this time to reflect on everything that's been going on on the podcast over the last couple of months. Yeah, so we're doing a end of season 14 and looking forward to to having some conversations about what happened and uh, some of the things that we both really enjoyed about the podcast. And uh, I'll just give a teaser here real quick at the at the outset. After this episode, we actually will have a special, what I'm calling a Martha season. Uh, so three episodes from Martha. So we're not going to take a break for the holidays. Martha has been working hard recording some episodes, which I'm excited to hear. So stay tuned in for our coming episodes uh, after this. Wow, I really like that branding, the Martha season. That's yeah. that's kind of <laughs> exciting. <laughs> and uh, maybe we'll tease a little bit about what our listeners have to look forward to in the coming sure. weeks. Um, we're not in the Martha season right now. Right now, as we're recording this, we're just at the beginning of Advent, which I have to say is my absolute favorite season of the church year. It just feels like the most honest season of the of the church year, the now and not yet of the kingdom of God and Mm -hmm. um, that preparation and uh, sense of expectation. I just love that invitation to be attentive to where we're seeing the, the signposts of God around us. What, what's most important to you about this time of year, Lauren? You know, it's so interesting because someone who grew as someone who grew up in a non-liturgical a tradition like we didn't do my tradition independent baptist was not into advent or the liturgical calendar at all and yeah i really was probably introduced to this this kind of a liturgical calendar maybe 15 years ago so in many ways i'm still kind of learning the traditions and i will say one thing you know i've recently begun uh, a practice trying to like on Sunday evenings, just with my kids and family and wife, where we do like a, a prayer time mm-hmm. just to talk about the week. And, you know, my kids are six and 11, so it's, it's pretty short and sweet <laughs> right. to try to keep them engaged. Um, but I've, I did this last year. I think this did this the year before, and I've just been incorporating it still is lighting an advent candle mm-hmm. Uh, as part of that on Sunday nights, which kind of lines up perfectly since we've, you know, would have done that in the morning before, you know, in church. So I think there's, I think like you said, like you alluded to, Advent has this weird kind of now and not yet. And I think that's one thing that continues to fascinate me about you know, the message of Jesus is there is this paradox to it. And I think that's really made, I wouldn't say made clear, but it's made 
it's made known in this season of Advent too, that paradox innate, paradoxical nature. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Very much so. I think um I always say that uh that for me, like the season of Advent is a taste. Like mm-hmm. we have our special foods that we eat only at this time of year. And like for me, mm. food and um and spirituality are like so completely intertwined. But mm-hmm. like it's to me those like particular flavors of the year are just like so connected to that picture of what it is that God wants for us, like the the joy and the delight to which like God is calling all of creation, that mm-hmm. that kind of wholeness, that sense of story that's like passed down through recipes and um, traditions. And um, like, I think as you're kind of naming that lighting of the Advent candle as being an extension of what happens in church for me, like those, those meals and those special things that we make only at this time of year, that, that to me feels like an extension of what we do in the church year as well in, in a pretty awesome way. I, I process life through my stomach, so mm-hmm. <laughs> that works so for me. You've been you've been in this I don't want to say liturgical tradition for quite a while. Like what keeps it fresh for you? Like does that make sense? Yeah. Like- yeah, I I mean I I have grown up basically most of my life in the Anglican Church, although I would say that uh the Anglican Church of my childhood was, uh, like in Anglicanism, we talk about low and high church. So mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. it wasn't nearly as liturgical when I was a kid okay. as it is now. I don't remember that same kind of focus around the changing colors of the year and the changing yeah. prayers reflecting the different seasons and that kind of thing. Um, but I think that I think what keeps it fresh is kind of what keeps the the nature seasons fresh like there's there's just always this invitation to um to see truths about our lives like reflected in in those hmm. different moods and emotions and um and colors of the church year I, th- I think it just connects to the the heart in a pretty pretty direct way Hmm. I think that's so interesting. And again, I think there's something that's fascinating to me about liturgical traditions being somewhat new to them. Again, as someone who grew up being taught that ritual was a bad thing. Right. You know? So I really kind of appreciate ritual and tradition and Obviously, they don't all resonate with me, but I can appreciate what they're trying to get at. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's always easy to interpret ritual as being stifling in some way. But right. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. I read a great quote on tradition, and I'm struggling to try to recollect what it was or who said it, but it was something to the extent like tradition isn't acting out of the past it was like living 
like living in the present informed by the past or something to that extent. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like that's something that what ritual in some ways right and these traditions are about. I agree. Like at the the word traditio is it, like I think it literally means a handing down. And mm-hmm. I like that like relational element that's kind of built into the word that uh, it's a living thing and it's a, a relational thing. Mm-hmm. So Lauren, the, uh, the standout episode for me this season was the conversation that you had with Andrew Root. Um, and that was a really, I think, deep unpacking of what it means to be the church in the secular age. I just found that I kept hearing all of the other episodes and then reflecting on my own ministry from the lens that Andrew Root offered in that conversation. I think, um, you know, the big takeaway for me in terms of what he offered, and like obviously he grounds his work and his writing in some really good like rich research. Mm-hmm. He drew a lot on the work of Karl Barth and on Charles Taylor. Um, but I loved the, the reframing around like what the central question should be for us as a church in a secular age. And he noted that it is just so easy for the question to be about um, declining numbers. Like, how do we get people into our church? And, you know, really what the question is, is how do we communicate the living God to a world that has a completely different framework and language um, around, like, the nature of reality and... uh, how like how does god speak into a secular world um i think so much of the other pieces that we talk about in this podcast especially around like clergy wellness um mm-hmm. around the pressures that leaders feel in uh kind of the the hero scapegoat dualism right. that that we sort of face in trying to like save our individual parishes is connected to like the wrong question. It's connected mm-hmm. to this question about how, um, like in the face of decline, were the church that's left standing, were the church that's attracting the numbers. Um, and, and ultimately like when we do that, when we kind of, and like there's a million subtle ways, I think in all of our denominations that we just become like the metrics are around numbers, they're around givings, they're around attendance, they're around like how many people sign up for our programs, how many baptisms we're doing, like, and all of those things kind of subtly reinforce like the the whole premise of like free market capitalism, which is is right. like the the secular model right like right. we're kind of undermining ourselves at every turn when that's how we're talking about fruitfulness in ministry and when we kind of place upon our 
shoulders, our leaders' shoulders, this expectation that in the face of decline, good leaders are going to be um, ones who buck that trend of decline. Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought that Andrew's work gave us permission to to come back to a much more gospel centered place of yeah. like, okay, decline numbers, like market capitalism all aside, how are we communicating the good news to mm-hmm. a world that like we still believe needs to hear it? Like that felt like a really gracious and liberating place to to center as somebody leading a church. So, yeah. Yeah, because you know, you can speak to this more directly than I can, doing this on a on a full time basis. But you know, in that episode, right, I created that kind of like joke for him. I don't know what's like up in in your neck of the woods, but in the states, especially in my area, like churches will always have like a catchy name, and then like they're kind of like three word yeah. tagline. So I was like, well, what it, you know. I almost want to go so far into to make like a logo for this just because it's so fun and paradoxical and simple. But I told him like, I think like Andrew Root Church would just simply be like worship, pray, and wait. Yeah. And I put that in social media and what, you know, one of my clergy friends was like, that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like if that's all I had to do. Yeah. Yeah. Worship, pray, and wait. It's, it's great. Um, you've, you definitely shared over social media that this was a very meaningful conversation for you as well. Like, what did you find most hopeful about what he shared? I mean, let me just say from start, you probably sensed that kind of Andrew theme because I read like five of his books in like a six month span. So I really went deep down into the Andrew Root well, and I have another book somewhere on my pile of books to read that I'm really just delayed because I'm like, okay, I've had enough. Not that I can have enough, but I, I need to bring in some other voices here. Um, so that definitely did shape probably my thinking because it was so, I did so much reading. I think one thing, and I, I think I sent this to him in an email is for me, at least his writing really gave some, some language to something that I was feeling yeah. And I couldn't quit put my finger on. Yeah. Um like for one, I've always been someone who really loves church buildings. Hmm. I don't know what it is. Like I love church spaces, worship spaces. And um in the summer even, I went and did like this little social media scavenger hunt where I found pictures of old uh, churches from my denomination in my neck of the woods. Some of them were still in existence. Some of them were obviously closed and kind of used a history book that someone had written in and kind of shared their stories and, and images of that church. And I was kind of surprised how many were like, thought it was kitschy and fun. Cause I was just kind of like nerding out right. on, you know, on what's up, wanting something to do during the summer. And I can't remember which book it is, but Andrew Root says something about churches having a resonance. And I think he kind of gets that word 
think from, if I'm going to say the name right, like Hartmann de Rosa, who's a philosopher, I want to say from, from Germany, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, like, I, I feel that, I think, like, I feel that resonance. Like, I feel like there's something more in worship spaces. And I, uh, this summer, the Disciples of Christ, you know, the denomination I'm ordained in, had their national gathering. And they took a, a group that I was fortunate to go with, <clears throat> excuse me, to a little old church in Kentucky. And it's kind of like one of the two real um, central locations of where the Disciples of Christ kind of movement, or, or I should say the Stone Campbell movement for our church history nerds and our uh, other friends who came out of that movement, um, where Barton Stone, hopefully I'm getting that correct, my history, there was a huge revival that took place in, in Kentucky. And it was at this meeting house. And, you know, this this little log church is now has like a, I think in the 50s has like a superstructure built around it. And when I was there, we had a worship service and I just couldn't help but like think about like looking around the logs and thinking like, you know, not even if these walls could talk, but almost like, I don't know, like the sacredness that these walls are holding. That makes sense. Yeah. Like almost like the walls do talk. I think like everybody here at the church where I serve, which was built in 1840. So old-ish yeah yeah um they refer to this space as a thin space like yeah but it's just yeah you're you just feel a little closer to that veil between mm-hmm. this world and the next and i think it has a lot to do with like i do think that physical spaces absorb something of what happens in them and when you've had a community of people like praying and feeding the hungry in this space for the past you know 160 odd years like 80 years 180 years like mm-hmm. that um like i think i think the walls kind of talk like i yeah. think it gets soaked up into the physical space and that's why i'm I'm so grieved whenever I hear of a church closing, not because, you know, it being developed for housing isn't, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing if a childcare or daycare goes in or community center, like those are all good, fine things. But to me, like, to me, it's, it's, it's missing out. Yeah. And this reminds me of something. I'm kind of curious your thoughts on. Martha, that I think, again, goes back to this Andrew Root theme, but I've heard in other in other unrelated conversations or books or podcasts, this idea of living in an, an, an enchanted world. Mm-hmm. And again, it kind of goes against that secularism. There's this, I can't remember why I just came across something recently and someone just made the statement like they wanted to believe. Um, no, that's what it was. A story on NPR, National Public Radio for for American listeners. And I think they had a story about a woman who converted to 
to Wiccanism, I want to say. Okay. Could be butchering the story. But there's a line that really was compelling in there. And it's something to the extent, like, I, I just got tired of, like, living as if there's nothing more. Yeah. And obviously, like, for me at least, I would, you know, I would interpret this more as something different, I guess we would say. But I feel like, to me, that's such an interesting dynamic. I'm not sure if that's the right word in our time about this idea, like, is is this pure, is this world, is this just, just this pure materialistic world where what we see and taste and touch is all there is? Yeah. Or is there this, to use a word, enchanted mystical moreness? Yeah. In, uh when we baptize people in our church, we have this beautiful prayer and part of it um, prays that, that uh, the newly baptized will have an inquiring and discerning mind, which I just mm-hmm. love, and the courage to will and to persevere, spirit to know and to love God, and the gift of joy and wonder in all God's works. And um, like that inquiring and discerning mind, I think is really important. But I also just love that we pray that people will have wonder and mm-hmm. like awe, like awe and wonder. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think we need more invitation to to feel a sense of awe, to to wonder at the world around us, to not just settle for imagining that um that there's just kind of one dimension of what's going on. Yeah. I think one thing last I would want to also say is I think again worship wait and pray or worship pray and wait sounds really like oh we're just going to stop trying. Like I don't think it's a stop trying. Um I don't think it's like a you know, oh, we're just gonna like <laughs> not not care about you know our our preaching skills or our worship um, service quality. Like, we're not gonna not try. It just we're gonna like realize that it's ultimately not on us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's it's just being really clear about our focus and our why, you know, mm-hmm. like why we're doing this. Um, yeah, absolutely. I thought that, uh, that another episode that to me felt really connected to what Andrew Root shared in that episode was the interview that you did with Gail Caffarata. Um, and she has written a book about about what it feels like to close a church. Mm-hmm. Um, and she did a ton of research going into this book. I liked how she flipped the the switch on the interview and she ended up interviewing you yeah. about your experience of leading a church plant and and needing to to draw that ministry to a close. I want to say thank you because I it was a it was a very honest and I think kind of raw uh, conversation and yeah. I thought that you really spoke for 
just so many people who have been through that experience in a way that felt really unguarded and valuable. So mm. thank you for doing that. Yeah. Um, I can just kind of share that I have a little bit of experience with church planting insofar as I have in in two different church contexts started new congregations within the existing mm-hmm. fabric mm-hmm. of a parish community and um and there especially the first time that I did that um I I just felt like my whole heart and soul like yeah. was riding on whether or not this thing was going to succeed like Right. It felt like my child. Like it right. felt like it was almost hard to hear anybody like say anything critical about the the enterprise because like it felt like a criticism of me. Like I really had to work through that in order to to uh, be able to not just die trying to start this thing that I loved so much. Um, I think that I, I was able to attend better to my feelings the second time that, hmm. that I was part of starting a new worshiping community. Um, but, you know, in both cases, I've had to go through um, that grieving process when things don't work out the way that I wanted them to. Yeah. Um, when things come to an end, the the church community that I started in the place that I served prior to St. Catherine's, like that community didn't survive my leaving. Um, and that was a grieving process. And hmm. the church community mm-hmm. that we've started here in St. Catherine's just hasn't come back from COVID the way that yeah. we had hoped. And is in kind of this amorphous place of okay, what is this going to be, and is is there something to to salvage here? And and that's not just hard for me; it's hard for all of the people who right. invested their hearts and souls into this this vision. Um, I mean, those are kind of the experiences around church planting, and you were speaking to your experience of church planting, but. Like Gail's work also um, details the the weight that people feel in established congregations when yeah. when those ministries come to a close or when hard decisions need to be made and and I think again like there was so much connected in that whole conversation around Andrew Roots like teasing out of these realities of ministering in a secular age and the the success and failure that rests on leaders to to try and um buck the trend so um i i thought that it was just such a place of like solace and honesty for people who have been through that who've carried that weight who have felt the the grief of things not going the way that they wanted what what were your feelings coming out of that conversation like what what felt important to you in talking to Gail yeah 
And I just want to give a shout out again for her book, The Last Pastor. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just looking back at the title. Really recommend it because like this isn't this isn't just some like book where she gathered like a handful of pastors. Like she did a real full on sociolog- sociological research study as someone who has the the credentials to do that. So I mean it's a legit study. Yeah. And I think for one, you know, I Martha, you kind of brought this up just here in our notes in our preparation for this episode. That I think this this topic can really be important for someone, whether or not their church is closing. We all go through really I shouldn't say all, but I think most of us probably probably all clergy go through a real big disappointment in ministry. And it may not always be like a church closing, but it could be a ministry or endeavor they they took a big swing and you know, swing and a miss. Yeah. And like there's you know, I think one of the broad themes that came out that I took was like I felt like I felt like I was alone in just like I don't want to say hard feelings, but misunderstandings, mm. um, lack of smoothness with the denomination after things ended. Mm. It, you know, so for me, like it was really valuable even in that conversation when I would just say like, "Hey, things were kind of rough," and she's like, "Oh yeah." I've heard that again and again. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, like that grief can be so isolating. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me to be a big gift of the work that she did is yeah. just yeah. connecting people to one another in that shared experience. And I appreciated how you said, like, whether you've experienced a church closing or not, read the book because right. it does right. speak to just like, again, those pressures that we, that we feel as people in pastoral ministry and, um, and the, the success failure model that kind of we all live within. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I thought it was a really important conversation. Um, one of the more recent uh, episodes that you had was around the future of theological education, and uh, you were, again, that's kind of connected to the decline of the institutional church like how should theological education be adapting this is a big topic in the circles that we all travel in right like what does it look like to pay for a big expensive seminary education and like when we don't have the same prospects for like lifelong full-time employment in the church when we come out of it um like how do we how do we change the model? How do we change the expectations? Um, I'm curious about your experience. That was one of the big episodes where I just felt like I wanted to jump through my uh, earbuds and like jump into the conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. How many years ago were you in seminary, Lauren? So I think this summer will be my 10 year anniversary of an ordination. So essentially May of 2023 was when I graduated. May of 2013. <laughs> 2013, yeah. yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. And so I was, uh, I graduated in 04. Mm-hmm. So I'll be 20 That's when I graduated years. Bible college, fun fact. Oh, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'll be 20 years out in, uh, in this spring. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I didn't think when I was in seminary that I was necessarily getting into a job that would provide lifelong full-time employment. I don't know. Was that an expectation that you had? Gosh, this is such a hard question to answer because I feel like it's hard to be, you know, I feel like I don't, maybe this is like revisionist history, but I feel like it, it was to some extent. Oh yeah. You know, like, like I remember like, cause I, I looked at a couple seminaries and I remember like, you know, one of the recruiters being like, Oh, an, an MDiv is a very, that's a professional degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'll do respect to those of us with MDivs. But, you know, I, I think this is in, um, I think this is in like the Josh Packard, Todd Ferguson book where they talk about like having an MDiv is basically like saying I went to Hogwarts. Like people don't know what to do with that. You know? <laughs> right. They did say that. That's funny. So yeah, that's a, that's a hard one to answer. Do you feel like your MDiv has served you well in the 10 years that you've been in ministry? Like, do you feel like the, you were educated in the things that you needed for leading churches these days or like what, what was missed? Like what were the takeaways? Yeah. Again, that's, I want to be kind to our sponsor here in my alma mater, uh, Philip Seminary shout out. And I, I'm also reminded of uh, Edwin Friedman. I think he writes this in his Generation of Generation book, this idea that like, this idea that like, clergy always say like, oh, I didn't get this in seminary when really they did. Right. So I want to kind of, I kind of want to give that pref, you know, give that first, you know, to some extent, you pr- you're probably familiar, right, with the analogy of like going to seminary is like learning to become a, become a cook or a chef hmm. and being a pastor is kind of like running a restaurant. Okay. Like, I think that's a very fair analogy. Like at some extent, like seminary teaches you how to, how to cook and be a chef. Um, but learning how to run a restaurant, to right. stay with the, the metaphor yeah. is, is a totally different ball game. That being said, you know, I know some people have advocated for like, Oh, the, the MDiv should, should be like a MBA plus, some theology added on and there's some there's some rationale for that but also i think like i think theological education is very important like mm-hmm. i mean at the least right we could say it like learning theology in church history is basically like what mistakes have been made in the past and how can we learn from those and not make those same mistakes right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well i think like mistakes but i think also just like tracking the the movement of the holy spirit like right. being clear that um that those cycles of death and right. resurrection are part of the life of the church that um that actually like survival of the institution isn't isn't sort of our job mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, yeah i think that there's a lot to be gained from being a 
a, a student of church history for sure in terms of encouraging us in this time and place. Like we have a lot of privileges of being mm-hmm. the church today that uh, that we shouldn't lose track of. Yeah. Any thoughts for you on that? You know, you've been out 20 years. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I think I have a bit of a different take on it than a lot of my colleagues do. I think I hear a lot of my colleagues say exactly that, like, I should have taken courses in human resources. I should right. have taken courses in finances. I should have taken courses in how to run a business. Um, like that kind of all of those practical pieces of running, say a million dollar institution, mm-hmm. like hit or miss in terms right. of whether or not we have the skill set or any of the experience to be able to do that when we find ourselves in these situations. But at the same time, I I actually do feel like pretty well served by like in our seminary, the model was that you take a certain number of biblical courses, theology mm-hmm. courses, pastoral courses, and church history courses. And guess what? Like I wouldn't want to be serving in ministry without that foundation. Like mm-hmm. that it seems to me that sort of the other pieces, either A, you learn as you go, or B, like maybe you do need to equip the body of Christ and the different gifts yeah. within it rather than just like, I'm never going to be a property manager. You know, right. I'm never going to be the person that you should turn to in terms of knowing like what needs to happen with the plumbing in the building. <laughs> and like, I could use that skill set in ministry for sure, but I'm really glad to draw on other people in the body of Christ who have that skill set. Um, so to some degree, I feel like some of the the things that we get cranky about with our theological education like doesn't really recognize that the the pastor shouldn't be mm-hmm. the the mm-hmm. be all and end all of every need of the organization. Um, but at the same time, I do think that there's a big financial question, no doubt. Like if if we see fewer and fewer full-time lifelong ministry right. opportunities in front of us in the future, then you know, what does it look like to equip theological education? So I don't have all the answers, but um but good to be carving out the space for the questions because yeah. They're definitely serious questions. And to bring this back to our topic from the beginning, it does, Andrew Root does come to mind at all because I feel like he would, yep. his thinking is something like the same thing that it's not supposed to be all on the the management skills, you know, the human resources, the the business savvy, the pastor. Like there is some element of waiting for God to move um, and trusting God as, as hard as that is today, right? Yeah. With those external pressures. Yeah. I would also say, um, you know, you're giving me an opportunity to tease here. Um, trying to find the book here in my stack. Hopefully going to have on um, 
Ted Smith. He writes a book, The End of Theological Education. Oh, okay. So I'm hoping to have that conversation in the next next season. Uh, Do you want to take a minute to to tease your season here? Yeah, the season of Martha. Um, well, That's actually, season two, Martha. This, this is Martha's season. Martha's. Summer will be season of Martha. Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, actually, so I just finished an interview that I guess will be out sometime in the next few weeks with um, Justin Anthony, who comes to us from over the pond, mm-hmm. and he has a really interesting book. Now it came out ten years ago. It's called "You're the Messiah, and I Should Know Why Leadership Is a Myth and Probably a Heresy." So mm. if that's not a clickbait title, I don't yeah, know what it is. is. Uh, um, and he wrote this ten years ago, but he was kind of saying like nobody cared about it ten years ago. But now right. that we're sort of seeing the fruits of investing so heavily in this idea of like MBA priests and like you need a business degree to, to manage the life of the church. And uh, like, we're kind of in the throes of that in a lot of ways in the church these days. um, As again, we like throw a lot of noodles at the wall and try to see what sticks in saving the institution. Um, he really like takes to task sort of a lot of the assumptions that we have around managerialism and yeah. um and leadership in general and uh, yeah. he draws on a lot of research from the secular world in terms of how we talk about leadership and then how we've like maybe adopted that into the life of the church without a mm-hmm. lot of critical thought um yeah so i think that'll challenge it's challenged Absolutely. me a lot because I talk about leadership in the church constantly and, mm-hmm. um, you know, his book really causes you to pause and think like, oh, like what is the definition of leadership anyway? Mm-hmm. And is that the best language for talking about pastoral ministry? So that's a bit of a tease. And um, I'll also tease because I think that uh, it's very relevant to Andrew Root's work as well. I got to interview Michael Graham, who wrote, co-wrote the book, mm-hmm. The Great Dechurching. And yeah. uh, that really draws on some very current research around why people are leaving the church, the institutional church. And spoiler alert, um, the conclusions that they draw are not like the conclusions that you might think. Hmm. So very, very good. Very good tease there. Sound I'm I'm intrigued. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's gonna be a fun couple of episodes ahead. I also got to talk to Amy Frickholm, who is uh an editor with the Christian Century. So that's a bit of a different voice too in terms of how um journalism and and that uh, that carving out of space for the inquiring and discerning mind in the life of the church is important uh, yeah. too for us. So, yeah, I'm I've enjoyed the conversations and hope that our listeners will too. So here's another theme that keeps coming up for me in 
the future Christian podcast sphere. And I've said this a lot over the course of our conversations together, Lauren, but Mm -hmm. I just think that uh, one of the great things that this podcast does is it makes space for a diversity of voices across our Christian church in terms of assumptions, ways of teaching, especially ways of talking about spiritual experiences that form us as Christians. I grew up in a very mainline progressive experience of the Christian church. And Lauren, you grew up in, for lack of a better word, an evangelical expression of the church. Mm -hmm. I think that it's valuable in these recap podcasts to share a little bit across our experiences of those two different contexts to continue to foster more understanding and more common ground across our different Christian cultural contexts. Um, like I, I just know that in the context I grew up in, there was such distrust toward yeah. people in a more fundamentalist or yeah. evangelical expression of the church. And I think that distrust works both ways. So yeah, I think breaking down that distrust is a pretty important thing these days. So I thought it would be interesting today for each of us to answer what's something in your Christian upbringing that you have held close and what's something that you've left behind. I love this question. I'm so glad you brought it. Uh, I almost want to include it in our end of questions, you know, that we ask everybody yeah. now. So I think something that comes to mind is one is I still really hold a deep reverence and appreciation for the Bible. Like um, in like my work, in my quote unquote secular day job work bag, I have a Bible that I carry around. Um And whenever, whenever I go on a trip, I always like to bring a Bible, like I have a Bible in my car. So I think that's one thing that comes to mind for mm-hmm. sure. Um, I will say like for about eight years, I left behind prayer. Wow. Yeah. And I've recently re-engaged prayer a lot. Um, I think one thing that I really have thankfully left behind is, is like the, I think the guilt, and I don't say like that I don't feel guilty about things. Um, but I've gotten a little better, at least I'll say this about trying to be true to what I believe and what I think rather than the external pressure of others, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really good. How about you? Um, I think that uh, something that I hold close is that permission for intellectual curiosity that I Mm -hmm. grew up with in the Mm -hmm. church that I just have such tremendous uh, gratitude for. And I just don't believe I would know how to be a follower of Jesus if I hadn't understood that permission to be there. Like I, I've, I'm just so grateful that um, there was never a sense that, oh, you can only ask certain things or believe certain things or wonder yeah. about certain things. Yeah. Um, 
I, I loved, I loved the, the intellectual freedom of the Mm -hmm. church that I grew up in. Um, and then I would say something that I have left behind or, or expanded might be a better word, like growing up in a liturgical tradition where the prayers are, tend to be ancient and beautiful Mm -hmm. and like there, there just isn't like free form prayer built into our services um, or very little of it. Yeah. Um, I, like, I remember the first time that as a seminary student, I had to pray with somebody in a hospital room. Mm -hmm. I just about like I was so scared because yeah. I, I'd never done such a thing. Like I'd yeah. never prayed out loud without a book, like <laughs> with right. other people. And I, I have such love for our liturgy and for those beautiful ancient prayers. But I, I'm also just so grateful to have my world expanded enough that I can pray out loud with just whatever words happen to be in my mind and on my heart in that moment. And it doesn't have to be perfect or beautiful or even that coherent. It can just be honest. I'm, I'm happy for that. <laughs> I love that. Thanks for sharing that. That's a great one. I'm reminded of this will actually be somewhat of a tease to hopefully going to have on Liz Coolidge Jenkins, who's a pastor and writer. And she has a little section in her book about uh, her experience in evangelical church and so much of prayer being that off the cuff thing and, and coming to a, a mainline tradition where it was prepared prayers and kind of noting the, the good, the, both sides of each, each practice. So that's yeah. fun. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks Lauren. Well, uh, Martha has this great idea that I want to give her credit for of engagement session in our episodes like these are mid and, and end of the season wrap ups. So if you have a question or a comment from something you've heard on this podcast, I want to invite you, Martha and I want to invite you to send your questions to an email, my email, Lauren, L-O-R-E-N at resonatemediapro.com. We'll have a mailbag segment in our upcoming recap episode. So again, Lauren at resonatemediapro.com. And uh, looking forward to engaging more with some of our listeners. So thanks again to Martha for this idea. And uh, Martha, as we always do, we will leave one another with a word of peace. So uh, may God's peace be with you. Peace be with you as well, Lauren. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.